Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free audiobook. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast. Every bit of sponsorship I get goes right back into producing the products. You're getting my content for pennies on the dollar or free. My recommendation today is Jungle of Snakes, A Century of Counterinsurgency Warfare from the Philippines to Iraq by James R. Arnold. This book examines four insurgencies, the Philippines, Algeria, Malaya, and Vietnam, and how the occupying powers did or didn't defeat them. It's one of my sources for this series, a short, fascinating listen, and it's free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. Got it? On with the show. The year, 1900. The place, the Philippines. Guerrilla warfare has begun and the Americans fight a nasty struggle for the hearts and minds of the Filipino people. Is it possible to defeat an insurgency? I'm James Hauser and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 39, The Philippine War Part 3, Hearts and Minds. Today we're getting down and dirty into the second major stage of the Philippine-American War, the insurgency stage, guerrilla warfare. And as we all know, America never has problems with that. So it's been two weeks since the last episode, and that means it's time for a quick recap. Previously on the Unknown Soldiers Podcast... The United States was on the verge of its global age in the 1890s, when it got into a war with Spain over the issue of Cuba. The Spanish-American War was a blowout victory for the United States, which had officially come onto the stage as a world power. But in the 1890s, world powers liked to play the colony game, and America, after a long and heated public debate, decided to buy in. In the peace treaty with Spain, the United States officially annexed most of Spain's former empire, including the Philippines. But no one had asked the Filipinos. The Philippines were a mega-diverse region full of differing ethnicities and religions and factions held together only by the Spanish crown and the Catholic Church. They had been fighting the revolution against the Spanish for years under the leadership of their dubious president, Emilio Aguinaldo. They had seen the Americans as allies at first, but when the United States tried to bring them into their empire, the Filipinos declared that they would not trade one colonial master for another. Tensions grew between the two sides before a small incident outside Manila escalated into a major battle, sparking the Philippine-American War on February 4, 1899. In the war's first phase, lasting throughout 1899, American and Filipino forces fought each other in conventional engagements. The United States dominated this phase of the conflict, winning almost every engagement through superior firepower, organization, and morale. The Filipinos fought bravely, often heroically, but they were overwhelmed. By late 1899, the first Philippine Republic had been destroyed, but Emilio Aguinaldo escaped, pursued into the mountains of northern Luzon. America's military victory seemed to be complete, but during his escape, Aguinaldo proclaimed the beginning of guerrilla warfare. All throughout the islands, the Filipino resistance prepared to shift into phase two. It was time to revert to insurgency, and now things were about to get really ugly. 
So that pretty much covers Philippine War Parts 1 and 2, and of course I have short rounds with more detail on the United States military, including the famous African-American soldiers, the Buffalo Soldiers. So if you're out of order, I recommend you go check those out. If not, we're going to jump right into it. I'm scrapping the countdown. It, it just drags. It's not great. Okay. Captured dispatches from the local insurgent camp indicate that this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. It gets dark with every episode. It gets dark today. Podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources, including very useful maps, will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. America has a bad track record when it comes to fighting insurgencies and fighting guerrilla warfare. Within living memory, I might add. Uh, Vietnam, Afghanistan, not success stories. Iraq, eh, people can argue. I'm going to leave Iraq out of my examples a lot because Iraq is still a dubious case. We may or may not have sort of won that war, but TBD. But still, the United States is undeniably the most powerful military in the world, but it could not win these conflicts. And not just America, lots of countries run into this problem, because counterinsurgency is a whole different ballgame than conventional warfare. In this type of conflict, where the enemy forces hide within the population, where they refuse to fight you in the open, the rules of conventional warfare do not apply. Killing the enemy can actually be counterproductive. Half the time, you can't even find the enemy. And the enemy doesn't have to defeat you. He just has to outlast you until you're tired and give up. And this has worked. Just ask the Soviets and the Americans how Afghanistan went. See, the problem with counterinsurgency is that military action is only part of the solution. You can't just defeat the insurgents. You have to defeat the reason the insurgents exist. You can keep cutting the heads off the Hydra forever. You can kill the Taliban's militants forever. But unless you solve the issue causing the Taliban, you're treating the symptoms, not the disease. And the key to this is the people. Insurgents rely on the support of the people. Chinese communist leader Mao Zedong, a man who knew something about leading a successful insurgency, described the gorilla moving through the people like a fish moving through the sea. The challenge is to pluck the fish out of the sea. And this means gaining the support or at least compliance of the people, often referred to as winning hearts and minds, to convince the population that you, not the insurgents, are the legitimate government. And since you're the occupier, the enemy, that can be a tough sell. For counterinsurgency to be successful, military action, defeating the insurgents, has to go hand in hand with civil action, hearts and minds. And that still might not be enough. After all, the enemy always gets a vote. Today's episode covers America's first great counterinsurgency war, the guerrilla war phase of the Philippine War from 1900 to 1901. And like all counterinsurgency wars, this is gonna get nasty. Because this battle isn't for land or resources, it's for the allegiance of the Filipino population. The people themselves are the objective and the battlefield, with everything that entails. Because hearts and minds is a very nice, genteel phrase for what is, after all, a strategy for winning a war. This whole thing of, we'll convince the Filipinos slash Vietnamese slash Iraqis that we're here for their own good, is connected to the American image. That America only goes to war for good reasons, that we've come to help these people. Look, we build roads, we build schools, give you candy, hand out vaccines, we give you democracy. Just like we have, because our ways are best. 
America's image of the good guy spreading freedom and civilization and progress across the globe. But then there's the reality. What happens when the population refuses to accept your civilization and progress? What happens when they don't want your freedom? What happens when they have the freedom not to want your freedom? Well, then you might decide it's time to get nasty. If hearts and minds can't be one with the carrot, maybe they can be one with the stick. Guys, the Philippine War only gets uglier from here. Today, we'll continue the story of the Philippine-American War. Americans think the war is over, but they're about to be disillusioned. We'll take a deep dive into the guerrilla war and see what it looked like on the ground. There'll be a presidential election, a daring raid, and what seems like an end, but the worst is still yet to come. Because I'm going to tie it all together in part four. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because you're going to be in these villages and swamps a long time, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, fix that leak, go to the flea market, do the thing you need to do. So sharpen your bolo, hide in the jungle, and wait for that American patrol to pass by. Hey look, that one stopped to take a piss. Last mistake he'll ever make. Time to show the Yankees what insurgency is all about. We're going back on campaign. The 20th century had come. The year 1900 began with the United States of America at the apex of its imperial age. Manifest destiny had taken Americans from sea to shining sea, and American empire had taken them across the Pacific. And now it seemed they had been victorious there as well. Like most Americans, President William McKinley believed that Filipino resistance had been destroyed by the campaigns of 1899. Aircraft carrier, mission accomplished, you get the idea. So now it was finally time to take up the white man's burden and begin benevolent assimilation. The army's job was done, and it was time for civil authority to carry out the hard work of civilization and progress over these little brown people. And President McKinley had just the man for the job. William Howard Taft was a district court judge in Cincinnati, Ohio, well known in Republican circles. Yes, this is the future U.S. President. Taft was an ambitious, cheerful man who was famous more than anything else for being a big ol' hoss. His schoolmates had apparently nicknamed him, um, Big Lub. Uh, when he went to the Philippines, the 325-pound Taft would bring a custom bathtub specifically designed for his girth. But when McKinley looked at Taft, he didn't just see KFC's most valued customer. He saw a loyal Republican, a brilliant legal mind, and a capable administrator. The ideal first civilian governor of the Philippines. Taft didn't really want the job. Theodore Roosevelt did. He was actively lobbying for it, like, give me the job, I want the job. It was his dream to basically build a country from the ground up. But McKinley took one look at Teddy and said, absolutely freaking not. Taft still hesitated until Secretary of War Elihu Root said to his face that he could take an easy, comfortable job or a challenging, difficult job. Basically, the 1900 version of calling him a wuss. Within a few months, Taft was packing his bags for the Philippines. Taft would prove to be a pretty decent pick, but McKinley was wrong to assume that the Philippines were ready for civil government. McKinley shared the American image of war. We won the battle, destroyed the enemy army, captured the cities, war's over. 
Teddy Roosevelt seemed to agree. In April 1900, he and his New York Republican Party declared, The insurrection in the Philippine Islands has been overcome. The establishment of American authority in all the islands is proceeding to the contentment of their inhabitants. General Elwell S. Otis, the commander of U.S. forces in the Philippines, was on board. He had already declared victory for like the 20th time. He told one reporter, You ask me to say when the war in the Philippines will be over. That is impossible, for the war in the Philippines is already over. And to a casual observer? Yeah. The Filipinos had very few forces left in the field. Manila was transforming into an Americanized city through new arrivals and new businesses. The gambling houses and saloons and bordellos were all open. English was the new language of business, and gentlemen with their well-dressed ladies stepped over drunken infantry privates in the gutters and haggled with Filipino businessmen. Life was getting back to normal, or at least a new normal. Even outside Manila, near the old battlefield of Caloocan, one officer saw peace breaking out in April 1900. This valley was fiercely fought over. It was burned, first by one side, then by the other. Now what is happening? The population has returned and is busy building new homes and taking care of hastily gathered rice. Everywhere was noise and business. In the meantime, the U.S. Army was taking care of a few loose ends, the final occupation of all the major Philippine islands. The last few campaigns that could be remotely described as normal within the American image of war. At the start of 1900, there was one major Filipino force still in the field, occupying the southern Luzon provinces of Batangas, Cavite, Laguna, and Tayabas. Otis had completed his conquest of northern Luzon in 1899, that was the entire last episode, but southern Luzon remained defiant. This was the Tagalog heartland, the hotbed of resistance, the birthplace of the revolution. Starting on January 4th, the American forces pushed south through Batangas and Cavite. There was serious fighting with Americans and Filipinos sparring almost constantly in rice paddies and Nipa villages and thick jungles, but the Filipinos couldn't hold their ground and always melted away after a bit of fighting. By the end of January 1900, American troops had occupied the towns of southern Luzon and trade had resumed. But the ease of the campaign bred a false sense of security. The Filipinos had melted into the jungles and the mountains. They had not been destroyed, they had been dispersed. Soon they were ambushing patrols and supply trains, setting traps and sabotaging infrastructure, overrunning isolated outposts. Their leaders were a trio of skilled, dangerous Filipino commanders, Mariano Trias in Cavite, Juan Calles in Laguna, and Miguel Malvar in Batangas. Miguel Malvar would be the best guerrilla leader of the war, and Juan Calles would be its most ruthless. Guerrilla warfare had already begun down here. It wasn't long before casualties from the guerrillas outnumbered those from the conventional war. Like, the Americans march in and fight battles, that part is easy. It's the constant harassment and sniping that starts to wear them down. But other unoccupied areas of the Philippines held special interest for President McKinley and War Secretary Root. These were the Bicol Peninsula in southeast Luzon, the eastern Visayas, and northern Mindanao. Basically, the eastern and southern half of the Philippines. These provinces grew some of the best hemp in the world. In 1900, hemp, often called marijuana, was better known for its use in manufacturing than for its use at music festivals. 
American corporations really wanted the hemp provinces open for business, and with 1900 being a presidential election year, keeping big business happy was just good politics. So McKinley and Root ordered Otis to conquer the hemp provinces. Otis agreed, even though the U.S. Army was already stretched to the limit, holding just Luzon and the Visayas. Many commanders protested that they already didn't have enough troops to hold their current areas, but politics came first. The hemp must flow. On January 18, 1900, General William A. Cobb loaded 5,000 men on transport ships and Navy gunboats and set sail for the eastern Philippines. It took until the end of February for Cobb and his forces to fan out over this vast area, occupying the main ports of the Bicol Peninsula, Leyte, Samar, and northern Mindanao, despite major combat in all these regions. Soon the hemp was flowing once again to the delight of politicians, business owners, and CBD enthusiasts everywhere. But the Filipino resistance remained fierce in these areas, and soon there was a brisk three-way trade going on between the insurgents, the Filipino hemp merchants, and American businessmen. Americans bought the hemp from the Filipino plantation owners, who used that money to bribe the insurgents so they wouldn't attack their plantations, who used that money to fund the guerrilla movement and attack the Americans. Congratulations, capitalism. You played yourself. With the hemp expedition complete, the United States had, on paper, conquered the Philippines. You look at the map, it's all blue. Everything's blue. War's over, boys. Time to get to governing. U.S. administrators were already rolling out a bunch of programs designed to civilize the backwards, sullen Filipinos. Their thoughts, not mine. The reforms were designed, above all, to rebuild the Philippine government and society in the American image. U.S. officials rebuilt the Philippine legal system, replacing centuries-old Spanish royal decrees and Catholic edicts with civic law modeled on the Constitution and common law, including a whole structure of Filipino judges and courts. They rewrote the onerous Spanish tax codes. They organized locally elected governments, though of course only certain Filipinos had voting rights. And the Americans started building roads, schools, telegraph wires, and sewage systems. And perhaps one of the biggest lifesavers of all, a widespread system of vaccination against common diseases like smallpox. And I want to be clear, crystal clear on this. A lot of this was positive. This did improve the Filipino standard of living. Many Filipinos appreciated the positive aspects of their new overlords, especially education. American troops, like random privates, found themselves pressing to duty as school teachers, teaching simple math and English on ponchos strung up in Nipa huts. Decades after this war, one Filipino lawyer said, I'll never forget that big American soldier who first taught me how to read. Americans were trying to convince Filipinos that, look, see, we really do have your best interests at heart. Our image is real. We really are Captain America. We're the good guys. This policy, when it came to guerrilla warfare, was called the Policy of Attraction. Many Americans believe that showing the Filipinos the benefits of American rule would end the resistance peacefully. Otis and other American administrators sent constant reports back to Washington, describing how wonderful things were going, how the Filipinos were accepting American ways. The United States had shown the light of civilization to the brown barbarians. Or so they said. But General Otis was out of touch with reality, because the military situation was collapsing. Some Filipinos accepted American rule, possibly a majority, but many didn't. 
The U.S. Army in the Philippines was spread paper-thin across dozens of islands, parceled out into small, exposed garrisons vulnerable to attack. The first four months of 1900, you know, after the war was supposed to be over, saw 442 attacks on American forces, costing 130 killed and 322 wounded, and it was getting worse. The deadliest and most difficult phase of the Philippine-American War, the Guerrilla War, had commenced. You might remember from last week, Emilio Aguinaldo made his famous proclamation on November 13, 1899. In that proclamation, Aguinaldo had ordered the Army of Liberation to take to the hills and mountains and prepare for a long-term campaign of national resistance. But after that, Aguinaldo's actual control over the war had basically vanished. Because a major characteristic of the Filipino insurgency was its lack of any centralized political or military organization. Aguinaldo was constantly on the run in northern Luzon, moving from hiding place to hiding place. He had no reliable means of communication with his major commanders. He sent out orders, but they would arrive late, or they'd never arrive, or they would arrive and the guerrilla leaders just ignored them. Aguinaldo served as a political symbol, a personification of resistance, and as long as he was out there, the guerrillas could fight in his name. But Aguinaldo never really had any command and control over the resistance as a whole. He was president in name only. What this meant was that each provincial leader, each regional jefe or boss, was an independent warlord. And a lot of these guys became legendary in Filipino history. The most dangerous by far were in southern Luzon, Juan Calles in Laguna and Miguel Malvar in Batangas. Each major island had its own commander, like Martin Delgado on Pane, Ambrosio Mozica on Leyte, and Vicente Lucban on Samar. They might or might not acknowledge Aguinaldo and his government, but in their own provinces, they were the jefes. They coordinated strategy and tactics, put out propaganda, organized the resistance. They ran the guerrilla war. Filipino tactics were avoid American strength, attack American weakness, draw the war out, make it expensive and difficult and impossible for the Americans to justify the cost, wage a long, drawn-out war of attrition, constantly jabbing away at the enemy, exhausting them and overextending them and causing them to lose heart. One Filipino described their tactics as constantly harass the enemy, causing him losses and avoiding such to our people, to prepare ambushes, avoiding combats, and to take rifles, ammunition, and prisoners. Another guerrilla leader said their goal was not to vanquish them, a difficult matter to accomplish considering their superiority in numbers and arms, but to inflict on them constant losses, to the end of discouraging them and convincing them of our rights. The Filipino guerrillas weren't trying to defeat the U.S. Army. That was impossible. They tried that. The goal was to defeat American will, to convince the American people that the war couldn't be won, to make Americans tired, heartbroken at the casualty lists and bitter at their government's failures to force political change back in the United States, not defeating the enemy on a military level, but on a political level. This is the ultimate goal of all guerrilla movements. Nobody becomes a guerrilla because that's the best way to fight. If you can win conventionally, you want to win conventionally. Guerrilla warfare is what you use when you can't win any other way. It's the method for a weak power to defeat a strong one. And guys, this can and has worked countless times throughout history. Vietnam, Afghanistan, the American Revolution, Cuba, 
You don't have to win. You just have to survive and sustain the conflict, making the war too costly for the stronger power. The Filipino guerrillas had a two-tiered structure, the regulars and the militia. The regulars were the ones hiding in the mountains of the jungle, launching ambushes and raids, inflicting losses. They were often remnants of the Army of Liberation. They had a semi-military organization. But they were also recruited via the patron-client relationship. Remember how I said two weeks ago how this weakness of Filipino society in conventional warfare would become a strength in guerrilla warfare? The local guerrilla jefe was usually a local landowner, a notable, a native of the region. And he was able to call his clients to join his guerrilla band. Someone like Miguel Malvar in Batangas, who knew the area, knew his people, had connections and networks. The local ties and social groupings that made the Army of Liberation a dysfunctional conventional army provided the guerrilla movement with natural cohesion. The regulars were supplemented by the part-time militia, often called the Bolo Men, from the long sword-like knives, the Bolos, that they wielded. These were the guerrillas that lived amongst the people, providing food and money and intelligence to the regulars up in the hills. They were the regulars' helpers and often their recruiting pool. But they were also the enforcers, the leg breakers, threatening and even assassinating anyone who cooperated with the Americans, dubbed the Americanistas. The guerrillas were not only impossible to track down, but they blended into the population. Like Mao said, they swam among the Filipinos as the fish swim in the sea. When too much pressure was on the local guerrilla bands, they could just hide their rifles and hang out in the village, indistinguishable from the locals. Americans called these Amigo tactics, or Amigo warfare, where the guys that were shooting at you yesterday would greet you like an old friend today, shouting, Amigo, Amigo. One American reported, I owe it to our rebel enemy to say that, from their standpoint, I regard their scheme of warfare as nearly perfect. In the facility with which they can play the Insurrecto Amigo Act, they have an immense advantage. Their facilities for recruitment and their plans for securing money and supplies are not to be despised. Their preeminent advantage, however, lies in their chameleon act, Insurrecto or Amigo, as suits them. It was impossible to tell who was an Insurrecto and who wasn't, who was an Amigo and who was the enemy. It was impossible to find the enemy before he found you because the local villagers were constantly feeding them information. In many areas, the guerrillas operated like a shadow government, collecting their own taxes, administering their own justice, and enforcing their own laws. They were competing with the Americans as the legitimate government of the Philippines. And this was the dilemma. The United States could not defeat the insurgents until they managed, one way or another, to win the hearts and minds of the Filipino people to convince them that they, not the local jefe, were the real rulers of the land. But in April 1900, the guerrillas were tightening their grip across Luzon and the Visayas. American-appointed leaders, the Americanistas, were winding up dead. Ambushes and skirmishes were growing in frequency and intensity. United States forces found themselves swamped by a rising tide of insurgent activity. Of course, the first step to solving a problem is admitting you have a problem. And Elwell S. Otis didn't think he did. As far as he was concerned, he'd won the war, and more importantly, he was going home. Otis was packing his bags. Just before he left, he gave an interview in which he confidently asserted, I cannot see where it is possible for the guerrillas to affect any reorganization, concentrate any force, or accomplish anything serious. Funny that he said that, because days before the interview, a crazy little battle on Samar 
pointed at things to come. On April 15, 1900, 600 insurgents approached a 31-strong outpost of the 43rd Infantry at Katubig on Samar. This attack was coordinated by Vicente Lukban, a former general in the Army of Liberation and now the guerrilla jefe on the hemp-producing island of Samar. The insurgents tossed burning piles of hemp into the American outposts, smoking out the Yankees and sending them fleeing for the shoreline. The Filipino bolo men cut the Americans down as they retreated to their final trench. In a ferocious, horrifying battle that lasted four days, 19 Americans were killed and three badly wounded before gunboats arrived to save them. This was a stunning blow, a remarkable display of American vulnerability. The Battle of Caloocan in February 1899 had been a big conventional battle, a big American victory, and that had only cost six American dead. This had just cost 19. This thing was getting serious. But Otis was high on his own supply, convinced a hero's welcome awaited him as the glorious conqueror. He barely looked back at the borderline catastrophe he was leaving behind. On May 6, 1900, Elwell S. Otis turned over command in the Philippines to Arthur MacArthur Jr. Arthur MacArthur Jr. was a man of undoubted talent, incredibly brave, a good tactician, an excellent planner and trainer. MacArthur was remarkably well-read, even for his age. Ever since he arrived in the Philippines, he had been reading every book he could find on East Asia and colonial policy. He was brilliant, in his own way, but like so many other brilliant men, he had a difficult personality. MacArthur was incredibly arrogant and downright insufferable. He was smart and he knew it. This was a man who spoke in essay format with purple prose. Just you just you're you just want to punch him in the face after he's talked for like five minutes. He was never popular with the public or even his own soldiers. That was why before Lawton had been killed, Lawton was the first choice to succeed Otis. MacArthur just was not a popular guy. But unlike Otis or Lawton, MacArthur understood the reality of the situation. That the war wasn't over, it was just transforming. But this wasn't just a guerrilla war, a counterinsurgency campaign, a war for the hearts and minds of the Filipino people. 1900 was a presidential election year. They also had to win the hearts and minds in a different way of the American people. Because winning the war, how the war was going, might be the difference between re-election and defeat for President William McKinley. As if he didn't have enough to deal with, now MacArthur had a rival. In early June 1900, William Howard Taft and his new Philippine Commission arrived in Manila. The governor and general got off on the wrong foot. MacArthur failed to greet Taft when he arrived, and when he did meet him, apparently he was just an enormous jerk and put Taft off from step one. Though it rarely spilled into open conflict, the dispute between the governor and the general poisoned their relationship. MacArthur was ambitious, cold, and ruthless. Taft was charming and gregarious, but he was also a master at holding grudges. Theodore Roosevelt, who has a long complicated history with Taft, basically becoming his best friend and then later his worst enemy, described Taft as one of the best haters that he had ever known. From this point forward, MacArthur and Taft would be enemies. But there were bigger problems. General MacArthur and the U.S. Army realized that the country was erupting beneath them. They could finally admit what Otis had denied for so long. America had an insurgency on its hands.
In the Philippine-American War, the United States was not just fighting its first overseas land war, it was fighting its first counterinsurgency war. The kind of war America in the modern age has famously not been very good at. So let's take a hard look at what this war looked like on the ground and why it was so difficult for the Americans to win. The objective in this war and the battlefield was the people, the allegiance of the Filipino people. An insurgency's center of gravity is its connection to the population. They are the source of its manpower, resources, security, intelligence, and its will. Break that connection and the insurgency will wither and die. If the United States wanted to win the Philippine War, they had to convince the people to reject the insurgents and align themselves with the Americans. But as anyone who served in Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam could tell you, easier said than done. This is why counterinsurgency is hard. There is no big power plant to blow up. There is no top gun blow up the enemy and you win solution. The whole point of the Philippine War was to liberate and civilize the Filipinos. So you can't go all Genghis Khan and kill everybody. Killing some people, though, that, that might be necessary. Because in this competition for the people, both sides, American and Filipino, would resort to increasingly cruel and violent tactics. If you can't persuade the people to give you their hearts and minds, you can always extract them with the bolo or the crag. Many Americans, like Otis, believe that once Filipinos saw the light of American civilization, they would willingly support the U.S. Army and reject the insurgents. And this fit with the American ideal. Of course our way of life is best. Of course we're the best. Everyone wants to be like America, so of course they'll just put aside the insurgency and see the light of our cause. This was the policy of attraction, that the Filipinos would see the material benefits of American rule. And the policy of attraction was critical. That was one critical part of the counterinsurgency war. But the mistake so many people made was seeing it as the only ingredient. William Howard Taft was all about a policy of attraction. He liked to refer to the Filipinos as America's little brown brothers, a very patronizing attitude. They were just ignorant savages who had to see the light. The American soldiers in the Philippines disagreed. They had a song that mocked Taft's naive attitudes towards the Filipino insurgents. This song's not quite as psychotic as the one from the last episode. I'm only a common soldier, man, in the blasted Philippines. They say I've got brown brothers here, but I don't know what it means. I like the word fraternity, but still I draw the line. He may be a brother of Big Bill Tash, but he ain't no friend of mine. General MacArthur had to strike a balance. Most of his subordinates considered him too soft on the Filipinos, too committed to the policy of attraction, not willing to let the army off the leash so they could go win the war. MacArthur had no issues with getting tough. No, no, he was holding back. He was waiting until after the election of 1900. But to Taft, MacArthur was a typical example of military chauvinism run amok. Taft said, he regards all the people as opposed to the U.S. forces and looks at his task as one of conquering 8 million recalcitrant, treacherous, and cruel people. Unlike Taft, who believed that the majority of Filipinos secretly wanted American rule but only a couple of troublemakers kept them from supporting Americans, MacArthur believed that the majority of the Filipinos opposed American rule that the policy of attraction would not be enough to win the war, that military action had to accompany civil action. MacArthur and Taft continued to snipe at each other and complain to Washington over how to end the insurgency. 
By October 1st, 1900, the United States had almost 70,000 soldiers and Marines in the Philippines, occupying 413 separate garrisons spread out across the archipelago. Hundreds of lonely company and battalion outposts out in the mountains and jungles and the villages and forests, and they were discovering the Philippines' diversity, how every province had its own unique blend of politics, ethnicity, and religion. It might be Ilocos in northwestern Luzon, the mountainous homeland of the Ilocano people, where a militant Catholic cult called the Guardia de Honor hated the local resistance leaders who were Ilocanos who hated the Tagalogs who tried to control them. They all hated each other, and they hated the Americans more. It could be Batangas, the Tagalog homeland, with its enormous rice paddies and large market towns, very densely populated, full of guerrilla attacks. It could be the Bicol Peninsula with its hemp plantations, where the people had retreated up into mountain sanctuaries. It could be Pane, where Americans controlled the seacoast towns, but the local jefes ruled the interior. And get this, in, during the guerrilla war, in 34 out of 77 provinces, almost half, the guerrilla war saw no fighting whatsoever. These provinces were peaceful. The policy of attraction had succeeded. There are stories of one American infantry company in one village being attacked almost every night, while their comrades in the next town over had no enemy contact for months. What well, my point is, the single Philippine war had become, in reality, dozens of regional wars. That's why it's impossible to really make a traditional narrative out of this conflict. This war can't be personalized as MacArthur versus Aguinaldo. MacArthur only had partial control over events on the ground, and Aguinaldo had no control at all. This was, on the American side, a company and battalion commander's war. On the Filipino side, it was a jefe's war, and each of them had to find local solutions to local problems. And the local American officer filled the role of practically every government official, highlighting the double-sided military and civil natures of this conflict. Lieutenant Benjamin Fulwa of the 17th Infantry, future father of the U.S. Air Corps during World War I, remembered taking charge of the local garrison at Cotabato on the island of Mindanao. He wasn't just the company commander, but he was also the customs inspector, tax collector, captain of the port, city treasurer, chief of police, and chief of the fire department. It was a lot to handle all of that and fight the guerrillas. Most American soldiers would be stationed near some village or some town, living in tents or local huts, constantly swatting away bugs and pulling guard shifts and patrols. Supply runs came every couple of weeks if you were lucky, and they often included mail from home. Always a good thing, unless it was like a Dear John letter or something. Oh, turns out your fiancé left you. Sucks, bro. Heard about this guy named Jody who's taking all the girls back home. The food sucked, it rained all the time, and not a smartphone in sight. And of course, the insurgents were constantly attacking American positions. This, this period, not the conventional war, was by far the most lethal phase of the Philippine War. The constant cycle of monotonous patrols and random attacks and random atrocities made Americans paranoid. One army officer said, While there is no enemy in sight, yet we are always on the lookout and we have slept in our shoes ever since we landed. The war may be over or may have just commenced. No one can tell what these devils will do next. Another officer offered a sage observation on the state of the war. This business of fighting and civilizing and educating at the same time doesn't mix very well. Peace is needed first. 
the main American counterinsurgency policy was like a three-legged stool. Without any of the three legs, it became unstable. They were civil action, security, and intelligence. Civil action we've covered. Look, schools, roads, vaccination, the positive benefits of American rule. But as long as there was still a guerrilla war going on, civil action could only accomplish so much. For one thing, a lot of the local leaders took the resources and money the Americans gave them and funneled them right to the insurgents. For another, any leader who was too compliant with American policies tended to end up dead. This leads us to security. The Filipino civilians were caught in the middle between the benefits of American rule and resisting the occupation. They probably didn't know or care about Filipino nationalism as a whole. The abstract question of who rules the islands doesn't matter to you. You've only ever seen your area, your island. The Spanish are gone, the priests are gone, the Americans aren't great, but they're better. But siding with the Americans, even if it was for your own benefit, opened you to retaliation from the insurgents. Any village mayor or local official who sided with the Americans was prone to assassination. The policy of attraction could not work. The Filipinos could not cooperate with the Americans until they felt safe doing so. The best way to ensure security was to destroy the insurgents. Say it with me, easier said than done. Because this meant going out into the jungle. Your average soldier would hump a pack up and down endless mountains, down goat trails, through deep dark jungles, and across raging rivers. The soldiers refer to these expeditions as hikes, and you can still see symbols of these jungle treks today. At least 50 copies of a statue called the Hiker all over the United States, remnants of local pride in the American imperial soldier. There's probably a hiker statue in your state somewhere, like odds are, because there's just so many of them, and they're almost forgotten today. But whenever the Americans went on one of these hikes, the local informants, the local people, immediately tipped the guerrillas off. So finding the enemy was a crapshoot. He knew what you were doing better than you did half the time. Americans were much more likely to find a booby trap, a tripwire, or a pit with sharp sticks at the bottom, kind of like Viet Cong booby traps in a later Southeast Asian guerrilla war. When enemy contact did happen, it usually amounted to a local ambush, like a minute of shooting before the Filipinos vanished again, untouched. It was impossible to find the insurgents and destroy them without the most important resource of all, intelligence, the third, the third leg of our stool. In counterinsurgency, more than any other type of war, military intelligence is the first priority. Because you don't know who or where the enemy is, one of the most basic things you need to know in warfare. The lack of intelligence was America's biggest struggle in the Philippine War. Local commanders were stumbling around in the dark, basically. Colonel Arthur Wagner of the 40th Infantry said the American forces were like a blind giant. The troops were more than able to annihilate, to completely smash anything that could be brought against them, but it was almost impossible to get any information in regard to the insurgents. One of the most effective ways to get intelligence was to exploit ethnic or religious divisions within the Philippines. This is an old imperial tactic to use the very diversity of a region against it. We've already seen in part two how Americans recruited the Makabebe scouts to fight other Filipinos. A similar breakthrough came in the Ilocos region of northwestern Luzon, a culturally complex area that MacArthur described as America's biggest challenge in early 1900. The Ilocos district commander was sending daily telegrams to MacArthur like, the insurgents control everything, they're everywhere, we can't find them, boss we are losing the war up here. 
A young intelligence officer, U.S. Army Lieutenant William T. Johnston, conducted a thorough investigation of the insurgency in Ilocos, but he still lacked the intelligence he needed until opportunity struck. A local religious cult called the Guardia de Honor had been fighting Aguinaldo's government even before the Americans arrived. The Guardia de Honor hated the Filipino ruling class and had been staging mass uprisings, banditry, and terrorism all throughout northwestern Luzon. But Johnston realized that they could be effective allies in the war against the insurgency. He went on to recruit and empower the Guardia de Honor in American service, and their intelligence gathering helped him to uncover the inner workings of the insurgency. American civilian officials protested Johnston's weaponization of this dangerous radical movement, but it worked. By the middle of 1900, the insurgency in La Union province had been virtually destroyed. In June 1900, Lieutenant Johnston's report found its way to General MacArthur's desk. It was entitled, Methods Adopted by the Insurgents for Organizing and Maintaining a Guerrilla Force. Johnston analyzed how the insurgents infiltrated the supposedly pro-American local governments and also how to root them out, one province at a time. And Johnston had shown the way this could be done, by exploiting ethnic, religious, and class differences to turn one faction of Filipinos against the other. This is an old imperialist strategy. The Romans did it, the British did it, the French did it. The Americans would exploit divisions within the Filipinos in order to conquer them. America could not win the Philippine War without Filipinos. And this assumed different forms throughout the islands because diversity is natural. In the Bicol Peninsula, where the population had retreated into the hills, the Americans got the local Catholic clergy to help them out. The Catholic Church could have been a unifying factor for the insurgents, but Filipino appeals to the Pope had failed. After all, the anti-clerical, anti-religious tendencies of the Philippine Revolution had pissed off the Vatican. So the Pope gave his blessing to America's civilizing mission, and the Catholic hierarchy often sided with the Americans. The insurgency in Bicol was undermined by their own religious leaders, who managed to bring much of the population back down into the lowlands. Brigadier General Frederick Funston used ethnic divisions to his advantage in the province of Nueva Ecija, with its capital at Cabanatuan. Nueva Ecija was part Iloco, part Pampangan, and part Tagalog, and the lower classes were actively hostile to the rich elites. Funston divided and conquered, arming the Ilocanos to fight the Tagalogs and using land reform to win over the lower classes. Tactics like this kept the Filipinos from ever really building an infrastructure in Nueva Ecija. But in other provinces, things were different. In Batangas and Laguna provinces, where Miguel Malvar and Juan Calles led fierce and skillful movements, the population was totally Tagalog. There wasn't a lot to exploit. There was also the huge island of Samar, where Vicente Lucban turned the mountains into a vast fortress. If the normal tactics didn't work, if the carrot didn't work, it was time to use the stick. A cycle of atrocities had already begun between the Filipino insurgents and the American soldiers. When either side failed to convince the local civilians to support them, they used other means, and the level of brutality only mounted over time. The guerrillas were dependent on the population, so when the population in any area started to move towards the Americans, the guerrillas resorted to force to bring them back into line. These were tactics best described as, that's what they were, they were terrorism. The Americans recorded 350 insurgent assassinations throughout 1900, and probably more, those are only the recorded ones. 
the famously ruthless Juan Calles personally oversaw 20 executions in 8 months. And these could get brutal. Lots of decapitations, mutilations, public murders, chopping people to pieces in the market square. On Samar, some guerrillas buried three collaborators alive, butchered an entire family, and tied a man to a tree before hacking him to death one limited time. The guerrillas did not play when it came to enforcing their grip on the population. The insurgents usually treated American prisoners better. The provincial jefes realized that mutilating or murdering American detainees would be bad PR, so American soldiers were usually treated well, even by Juan Calles. But the jefes didn't always control their more bloodthirsty subordinates. Mutilations were common. A few prisoners of the 45th Infantry had their hands and feet cut off. Others were found eviscerated, or with severed genitals stuffed in their mouths. Others were roasted alive over a slow fire. One American patrol on Leyte remembered finding the corpse of one of their comrades who had gone missing a few days earlier. He had been buried up to the neck. His mouth had been propped open with a stick, a trail of sugar laid to it through the forest. Millions of ants had done the rest. Yeah, that's a rough way to die, and that's a heck of a thing to find. See, these were isolated atrocities not approved of by guerrilla leadership, but they happened and the story spread fast. No matter how sympathetic you were to the Filipinos, finding your dead buddy with his entrails pulled out and his genitals stuffed in his mouth is going to change your mind real fast. But American atrocities were different. This was no longer the undisciplined ill behavior of 1899 when the state volunteers just went on rote, drunken, stupid roadshows. The random atrocities of the early war were giving way to the very calculated, targeted atrocities of the guerrilla war. One widely used tactic was burning. There's a lot of burning in this war, lots of fire, often used as reprisal for a nearby ambush or guerrilla activity. General Funston was famous for burning every house near any Filipino ambush. General Wheaton, a famous firebug since the war began, reminded his officers that you can't put down a rebellion by throwing confetti and sprinkling perfumery. If that sounds like someone we might know from American history, General William T. Sherman, yeah, most of these guys served under Sherman. He was their former commander and mentor. Wheaton had fought under Sherman. MacArthur had fought under Sherman. There were also reprisal executions, including, according to some reports, the killing of random civilians, including women and children, as reprisals for ambushes or atrocities. After one ambush on Mindanao when some of their buddies died, the local Americans arrested and executed 45 random Filipino men. Not not This is not random brutality. This is not senseless killing. Extremely calculated brutality. And then there was torture. Americans used torture to gather intelligence about the guerrillas, and they used it more the longer the war went on. It was born from the paranoia that Americans felt about every Filipino, that none of them could be trusted, that force was the only language they understood. Torture could take the form of false hanging, letting the man choke before cutting him down and hanging him back up to try again, or beating a man tied to a chair in a dark, isolated nipa hut. But the most infamous torture was the water cure. The victim's mouth was forced open by a bamboo tube, then the Americans poured dirty water down the victim's throat, the filthier the better, as the officer asked him questions. Where is Malvar? Where is his camp? 
How many men does he have? Which of the villagers works for him? Like, imagine what these, this looks like. These American soldiers are holding this guy down, just dumping water down his throat, pumping it in there, gallon after gallon. Then when his belly was swollen and bloated with this, this filthy water, then the torturers would kick his stomach or punch him in the gut until he vomited the water up. If he didn't talk, well, we're going to do it again until you do. The water cure was incredibly, incredibly painful. The victim felt like they were drowning, and it was something that, you know, you wouldn't want to experience this. This is not something you do on for a dare. This is, this feels like you're dying. The water cure had originated with the Spanish, who taught it to the Macabebes, who taught it to the Americans. Yep, we came to liberate you guys from the Spanish, so we can use Spanish tortures on you. We're still the good guys. Yeah, we're, just, we're doing this for good reason. We're doing it for good cause. We gotta, gotta get to the terrorists. The water cure was absolutely illegal, even by contemporary standards. So there was a code of silence. Everyone knew this was going on, but no one said anything, and they definitely didn't put it on paper. There's a couple of times I've seen records of a general writing to one of his subordinates, hey, good work in this province this week. Uh, also, there's a couple of things you included in your last report that you should not put on paper. Don't do that in the future. Higher authorities didn't need to know, and they didn't want to know. Any reports of the water cure were carefully concealed from Manila and from the American people. So how do we know about it? Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. But none of these practices was enough. As summer of 1900 dragged on, General MacArthur sent pessimistic reports back to Washington like, hey, it's getting worse over here, not better. I need more men. But he was actually losing troops to other missions. Earlier in 1900, the Boxer Rebellion broke out in China, and McKinley decided to send American troops to join the international force about to march on Beijing. Long story. Brigadier General Adna Chaffee took the 9th and 14th Infantry and a battalion of Marines to China from the Philippines. And he left just as a massive wave of coordinated attacks started to hit American positions all over the islands. In one of his only impacts on the broader war, Aguinaldo had ordered a general offensive for the late summer and early autumn of 1900. He was timing this to influence the American presidential election, which was only months away in November. Aguinaldo and the insurgent jefes knew they could never defeat the U.S. Army in the open, but maybe if Americans believed the war was going badly, they would vote for the Democrats, who promised to end the war. To the Filipinos, it looked like their only path to victory. They couldn't win a military victory, but maybe they could win a political one. In retrospect, this was a bad strategy. Aguinaldo relied too heavily on his ability to influence American politics, and he didn't really understand American politics. This was a pre-internet, pre-television age, where their ability to reach a worldwide audience was very limited. They had no way to use propaganda to project their message to America and putting all their eggs in the one basket of the election of 1900 would be a costly error. The Filipino leaders, the Aguinaldo and his jefes, were constantly promising their men like, hey, we're going to get the Democrats in office by our attacks, and once the American election's over, we're going to win the war. We just got to get over this hill, I promise. Once we're there, it's going to be over. They were over-promising something they really couldn't necessarily deliver on. But to the Americans, things only seemed to be getting worse. In September of 1900, two months before Election Day, the United States suffered two of their worst defeats of the war. The first was on the island of Marenduque, south of Luzon. On September 13, 1900, K. 
Captain Devereaux Shields and 51 soldiers of the 29th Infantry walked into an ambush. Filipino insurgents under Maximo Abad, numbering 250 riflemen and 2,000 bolo men, pinned the entire unit down. After Captain Shields was wounded, the rest of the soldiers were forced to surrender. This was the largest American surrender since the Civil War. And then it got worse. Juan Calles, the jefe of Laguna province in southern Luzon, was one of the most dangerous and feared guerrilla leaders, and he made sure the Americans knew it. He was sending letters to the local commander taunting him. The local commander happened to be Colonel Benjamin F. Cheatham Jr. of the 37th Infantry, the son of a Confederate general. He got so frustrated with Calles' taunts that he ordered an all-out assault on the insurgent leader's stronghold in the village of Mabitak. Captain David Mitchell and two companies of the 37th arrived at Mabitak on September 17, 1900. Mitchell was full of that gung-ho American spirit that had characterized the war from its first days, but without any tactical sense whatsoever. He ordered a stupid charge up a narrow causeway over a monsoon-soaked floodplain, right into Calles' well-prepared defenses. The Filipinos' good tactics and accurate rifle fire shredded the Americans and sent them fleeing. Mitchell and 23 other soldiers were killed in the Battle of Mabitak, the bloodiest battle of 1900, and definite proof that the war was not going well. Mabitak caused a shockwave back at Manila, and in Washington. MacArthur told Taft that if Mitchell had survived, he probably would have been court-martialed for his idiocy. But the fact was that the Filipinos were clearly not beaten, the war wasn't over, it was getting worse. When would it end? How do you defeat an insurgency? As the fighting grew bloodier and darker and nastier every day, all eyes turned to the United States, where the election of 1900 was imminent. It was the American people, via the ballot box, who would truly decide the outcome of the Philippine War. Welcome to the year 1900, the dawn of the 20th century. So when is this exactly? Well, let's see. Great Britain is fighting its own counterinsurgency campaign in the Boer War in South Africa. The Boxer Rebellion breaks out in China, and a coalition of world powers sends troops to rescue the foreign legations trapped in Beijing. A young British politician named Winston Churchill takes his seat in Parliament for the first time. Max Planck discovers quantum physics, the Hershey bar is invented, and one of the most popular songs in America is a song called Checks Notes, Every Race Has a Flag But the Coon. It's exactly what it sounds like. Finally, King Umberto I of Italy is assassinated by an anarchist. This was an age of anarchist assassination attempts. They believed that what they called propaganda of the deed, heroic and public acts of violence, would cause a worldwide uprising of the masses. But King Umberto wasn't the first, and wouldn't be the last, successful target. This is what we in the biz call foreshadowing. The election of 1900 was the political rematch of the age. The Republicans renominated President William McKinley for a second term. 
His opponent was, once again, William Jennings Bryan of Nebraska, the fiery, Bible-thumping young Democrat whose soaring speeches had lit the nation on fire in 1896. McKinley's platform was basically, listen up, America, the economy's booming, we won a big war, the Philippine War is going well. Under my administration, America has become a powerful force for global civilization and for the corporations. The slogan was, four more years of the full dinner pale. Let the good times roll. Though, who knows what kind of dinner comes in a pail. Brian's platform was basically, America, we have betrayed our principles, abandoned our image. What happened to our nation's soul? The common man is enthralled of the corporations, and we're waging an unlawful war in the Philippines. Fanfare for the common man, unless he was black or Chinese or Jewish. But most importantly, gold-based currency is evil. America must return to silver coinage to free the working man from the big banks. Brian, as you can see, had a problem. His favorite issue, the thing he loved, was currency reform, silver versus gold. But that issue was so 1896. The economy was better now, so people were less worried about a pie-in-the-sky monetary policy ambitions. So Brian focused on the other big issue of the day, the Philippine War and the anti-imperialist cause. Brian declared, Those who would have this nation enter upon a career of empire must consider not only the effect of imperialism on the Filipinos, but they must also calculate its effects on our own nation. Brian continued, Our experiment in colonialism has been unfortunate. Instead of profit, it has brought loss. Instead of strength, it has brought weakness. Instead of glory, it has brought humiliation. Brian invoked one of Abraham Lincoln's greatest phrases when he declared, No nation can long endure half republic and half empire. Brian argued that imperialism violated everything that made America special. If we forge an empire in the Philippines, if we deny a subject people the blessings of liberty, how are we better than the British we got our independence from? Are we any better than the Europeans? Are we any different? And mark my words, America, this war will not make us better. It will make us worse. It will make us brutal, make our government tyrannical, bring the violence home. Was Brian right? Was uh, this war going to bring the violence back home to America? I don't know. Tune in in part four. But Brian was striking a chord because the Philippine War was less popular every day. Now that shock and all was over and the war continued anyway, many Americans worried they had gotten into a quagmire with no end in sight. The casualty lists climbed and stories of atrocities began to seep out. The newspapers wondered publicly, how long is this war going to go on? Where's the end? What is the exit strategy? MacArthur himself, General MacArthur, was criticized for his failure to win the war. Some people suggested that he be replaced. His son, Douglas MacArthur, was a West Point cadet this, in this time period. And this year he played in the first ever Army-Navy baseball game as a left fielder. The Navy cadets heckled him with a chant. MacArthur! MacArthur! Are you the Governor General or a hobo? Who is the boss of this show? Is it you or Emilio Aguinaldo? Uh, uh, guys, that one needs work. That doesn't really pop. 
As the Philippine insurgency took a turn for the worse, the Republicans needed a way to close the enthusiasm gap. They needed someone with energy, someone who could rally a crowd, bring life to the ticket, go on the campaign trail, and fight against Brian. Someone who liked to fight. Anyone you guys can think of? Theodore Roosevelt was not really popular with the Republican Party bosses. They saw him as like a rogue element, a loose cannon. So maybe he could be neutralized by giving him a useless but high-profile job. Something harmless, like, I don't know, vice president. A job nobody likes. This would sideline the New York cowboy, but also pump some enthusiasm into the ticket. Teddy did not want the job. He was still trying to get the job as the governor of the Philippines. He said... In the vice presidency, I could do nothing. I am a comparatively young man, and I like to work. I do not like to be a figurehead. But Teddy eventually accepted the VP nomination at the Republican convention in June 1900. Republican politician Mark Hanna, one of the big bosses of the party, shook his head in disgust, saying to a friend, Don't you understand that there is just one life between that crazy man and the presidency? Hmm, if you know, you know, right? Hint, hint. Teddy took off at the speed of light as soon as he was nominated, running a barnstorming campaign across America, giving speech after speech until his throat was almost hoarse. In one eight-week period, he visited 24 states and made 673 speeches. You could be forgiven for thinking this was Roosevelt versus Bryan, not McKinley versus Bryan. McKinley, as was his habit from an older, from an earlier time, McKinley stayed home. He did not actively campaign. Roosevelt did the job for him. Teddy portrayed Bryan and the Democrats as dangerous radicals who would bring economic ruin and social upheaval and, worst of all, make the United States look weak on the world stage. They stand for lawlessness and disorder, for dishonesty and dishonor, for license and disaster at home, and cowardly shrinking from duty abroad. Woe if we fail to do our duty, because the first step seems hard to the weaklings and men of little heart. Basically telling America, if you have any balls, if you're a man, you'll vote to continue the war. Roosevelt tied Bryan's so-called anarchism at home with chaos abroad, arguing that quitting the Philippines would hurt both countries. Is America a weakling? To shrink from the work of the great world powers? A great future lies before the Philippines, and it can only be marred if this country is so unwise as to listen to those who would let us let the islands fall back into chaos. Republicans characterized Bryan and the Democrats as not just anti-war, but pro-Filipino in league with the terrorists. By criticizing the war, you're giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Some political cartoons literally showed Aguinaldo handing Brian talking points to use in his speeches, or Brian stabbing American soldiers in the back. Roosevelt declared that the blood of American soldiers was on the Democrats' hands. America, if you vote for the Democrats, you're voting against the troops. The problem was the Republicans were a teensy bit right. Aguinaldo and the other Filipino insurrection leaders openly hoped for Brian's election, and they weren't quiet about it. Aguinaldo based his entire strategy around it. He sent out orders for a grand offensive in the months before the election and spread propaganda advocating for Bryan's election. And of course, this made American soldiers feel some kind of way, so the American soldiers overwhelmingly backed McKinley. 
Ironically, Aguinaldo's activities probably hurt the Democrats' re-election campaign, since it gave credence to the Republican attacks. See? See, their Filipinos want Brian to win. There was also a small incident where some of the anti-imperialist leaders uh, tried to get in touch with Aguinaldo. This got revealed, and oh boy, that was not good for them. But other than that, Aguinaldo had a lot of trouble getting his message out because General MacArthur was censoring every single press release that passed through the Manila Telegraph wires. The Republicans could say the war was going well because MacArthur was keeping the bad news, all the atrocities and defeats and pessimistic reports, out of the headlines. He even banned the word ambush from any press releases. MacArthur was carefully curating the image of the Philippine War to meet American expectations. They, they were, he was hiding the reality and feeding the image. The American people didn't need to know this stuff, at least not until after the election. And to be fair, the anti-war movement was a freaking mess. For all the people who had a principled objection to the Philippine War, that it was wrong and bad and un-American, you have people like Andrew Carnegie who was like, the, this isn't profitable. The, we should just use them as puppets instead. That's much, much, much more profitable in the long run, which, is that much better? But then you have Southern Democrats like Ben Tillman of South Carolina, who is still screeching about all the brown people America risks bringing into the country. Lots of the anti-imperialists were more racist than the imperialists, if you can believe it. Republicans never lost a chance to point out the hypocrisy of Democratic sympathy for the Filipinos when their party's stronghold was the Jim Crow South. But the strongest voice against the Philippine War was a new recruit to the Anti-Imperialist League who would become its vice president. A guy you might have heard of named Mark Twain. Yeah, Mark Twain, American author of Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, etc. Very late in the campaign, in October 1900, Mark Twain wrote an open letter to the American people criticizing the war in the Philippines. I wanted the American Eagle to go screaming into the Pacific, I said to myself, here are our people who have suffered for three centuries. We can make them as free as ourselves, give them a government and country of their own, put a miniature of the American Constitution afloat in the Pacific, start a brand new republic to take its place among the free nations of the world. But I have felt some more since then, and I have seen that we do not intend to free, but to subjugate the people of the Philippines. We have gone there to conquer, not to redeem. It should, it seems to me, be our pleasure and duty to make those people free and let them deal with their own domestic questions in their own way. And so I am an anti-imperialist. I am opposed to having the eagle put its talons on any other land. So who would America vote for? McKinley or Bryan? Roosevelt or Twain? Imperialism or the anti-war movement? The American reality or the American image? You guys probably know what happens. Most of you know there was no President Bryan. But what I'm trying to emphasize is that Americans had a very real choice. When all was said and done, the outcome of the Philippine War was up to the American people. This was the point where it was going to go one way or another. If the Philippine War was going to end without an American victory, with a free and independent Philippine Republic, this is where it was going to happen. But as it turned out, despite all of this, the Philippine War was not the big issue of the campaign. People talked about it a lot, but that wasn't what people thought about when they went to the polls. Bill Clinton said it, it's the economy, stupid. The one time the Republicans were down in the polls in August 1900 was when the price of anthracite coal went up due to the possibility of a strike in Pennsylvania. 
Imperialist war, rampant corruption, the ultra-rich controlling our politics? That's cool, I can live with all that, long as fuel prices don't go up. Americans were just happier with the economy than they were unhappy with the war. At the end of the day, America voted for its interests, not its ideals. The Republicans won the election of 1900, and it wasn't even close. Unpopular war or no, McKinley actually increased his popular vote percentage from 1896. He won 52% of the electorate to Bryan's 45%, and the Electoral College vote was 292 to 155. The Republicans had a mandate for four more years of the full dinner pail, and approval from the American people to fight the Philippine War to the finish. America had spoken. They had chosen empire. And whether you know it or not, you've seen this election before in a fictional form. In 1900, May 1900, L. Frank Baum published The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Baum was a noted McKinley supporter, and he wrote his novel as a political allegory. I'm about to blow your mind if you don't know this already. Dorothy, a young, naive ingenue representing the American people, has her life thrown into the chaos by the tornado, which represents the Panic of 1893. To get back home to normality, she has to follow the Yellow Brick Road, which represents the gold standard. She assembles a coalition representing the Democratic Coalition of 1896 and 1900, the Scarecrow representing the Midwestern Farmer, the Tin Man representing the Industrial Worker, and the Cowardly Lion representing William Jennings Bryan, who doesn't want to fight. They eventually come to an Emerald City representing the dangers of fiat greenback currency. <laughs> yeah, in the end, Dorothy unmasks the wizard as a political con man and helps her companions find their brains, heart, and courage. L. Frank Baum's vision of McKinley's victories in 1896 and 1900. There, now I've ruined Wizard of Oz for you. Bet you didn't see that coming. Okay, back to the war. The election of 1900 was a disaster for the Philippine resistance. Aguinaldo and his supporters had pinned their entire strategy on a Bryan victory, and now that hope was dashed. But this was only the beginning. Because General MacArthur had been holding back, trying not to go hard on the war to do anything that might prevent McKinley's re-election. But now that that was no longer an issue, it was time for the gloves to come off. For months, American strategy had relied on the policy of attraction, trying to win hearts and minds with some nasty persuasion here and there. But now MacArthur was going mask off. The carrot was stepping aside to be replaced by the stick. MacArthur based his new policy on American military law, in particular General Order 100. GO 100 had been written in 1863 during the Civil War to govern the conduct of Union soldiers occupying the South, and it laid out strict guidelines for military occupation. The occupier was expected to protect the civilian population and treat them with justice and humanity. But GO 100 also had obligations for the occupied. If they engaged in guerrilla warfare, if they assisted the enemy, if they undertook violent acts against the occupiers, they lost the protection of General Order 100. They were subject to detention, destruction of property, or even execution. And a guerrilla was not a legal enemy combatant. He didn't wear a uniform. He was basically a bandit, and he could be punished like a bandit. This all sounds harsh. It was very harsh. But keep in mind, none of this was a war crime. People don't really know what war crimes are. It's not when a military does bad things. For instance, I see people describing all the time the highway of death during the 
Persian Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm, as an American war crime. Absolutely not. Retreating enemies are still absolutely fair game under international law. War crime is not when a military does some messed up stuff. War crime is a legal term. Militaries can do lots of horrific things that are entirely legal under international law. You can bomb the heck out of a civilian city as long as there's military targets nearby, but you can't use a hollow point bullet. Dressing up in the enemy's uniforms is a war crime, but mass detention of civilians isn't necessarily. So yeah, war crime is a legal term. Militaries can do plenty of bad things that are entirely legal under international law. And GO100 pretty much conformed to the accepted laws of war at the time. It prevented a lot, it didn't allow torture or rape or looting or murder, but it also allowed a lot. You could do a lot of very nasty things within the letter of GO100. You might be saying, James, you, you might have thought by now, don't the Filipinos have constitutional rights? Now they've been annexed by America, don't they fall into the Constitution? Huh, good one. In the insular cases of 1901, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that America's new imperial subjects did not have civil rights, that there were parts of American territory that now lay outside the U.S. Constitution. This is still on the books, by the way. You ever heard of Puerto Rico? American Samoa? Guam? Those are still governed under the insular cases, not under the Constitution. The legal basis for American empire. On December 20th, 1900, MacArthur made a proclamation to the people of the Philippines. Up until now, America had been holding back. Election's over. We're not holding back anymore. He declared the guerrillas, and anyone who supported them, guilty of violating the laws of war under General Order 100. Continued resistance meant that your life and property were forfeit. MacArthur said, surrender, surrender, while we still let you. GO 100 had been in effect since the war began, but Otis and MacArthur had used it very lightly. They had operated on the lighter side of that law. But now the hammer was coming down. They were implementing all the nasty stuff they could do within that law. Now Americans could execute captured insurgents, destroy towns, burn crops, make the Filipinos feel the hard hand of war, reenact Sherman's march all across the Philippine Islands. Most American officers got the message. In the words of General J. Franklin Bell, MacArthur's new counterinsurgency expert in northwestern Luzon, the intent was this. Create a reign of fear and anxiety among the disaffected, which will become unbearable, in hope that they will thereby be brought to their senses. If we can't win hearts and minds the nice way, with school books, we'll win them with the crag. MacArthur kicked off 1901 by sending 70,000 American troops on a general offensive. With no more election to worry about and given full leeway under GO 100, Uncle Sam's Imperial Army was off its leash. Elite units, usually including Filipino auxiliaries, made lightning assaults on insurgent strongholds. Big conventional forces swept the jungles, burning villages in insurgent areas. Lieutenant Johnston's strategies were used to break up insurgent infrastructure. Using local intelligence, American forces made mass arrests and executed insurgent collaborators. Hundreds of bodies swung from trees. MacArthur ended the practice of releasing prisoners, confining them indefinitely and exiling the most prominent of them to prison camps in Guam. He did this with many of the more annoying Filipino leaders, including Apolinario Mabini, who had been set free after his capture but couldn't stop causing trouble. MacArthur packed Mabini off and sent him to Guam, where he would stay for the next couple years. 
Major Matthew Batson, one of the Army's more ruthless commanders, founder of the Maccabebe Scouts, wrote to his wife, At the present, we are destroying everything before us. I have three columns out, and their course is easily traced from the church tower by the smoke from burning houses. There will be but little mercy shown to those who are carrying on guerrilla warfare or giving them aid. The Americans weren't burning just to be jerks. Random brutality was not helpful, but purposeful strategic brutality was another story. The Americans were using a deliberate policy of food deprivation. By destroying any supplies that could feed the guerrillas, the Americans could starve them out. The civilians would starve too, but oh well, stop supporting the rebellion. Sherman did it in Georgia, we're doing it here. Soon columns of starving homeless refugees fled from the guerrilla areas. Let's look at the example of Pane in the Visayas. Captain Edwin F. Glenn was the counterinsurgency expert on Pane, tracing and uprooting the resistance network. After he cleared the city of Iloilo through a bunch of investigation and almost like detective work, Glenn turned his attention to the countryside. He and his assistant, Lieutenant Edwin Conger, went from town to town, burning and torturing their way through Pane as they gathered intelligence on insurgent activities. One incident, one incident that we definitely know of. On November 27, 1900, Glenn and Conger came to the town of Igbaras and arrested Joveniano Ildama, the local mayor. They believed that Ildama had information on the activities of Martin Delgado, the local insurgent jefe on Pane. Ildama refused to give the information up, so uh, maybe this will change your mind. Soldiers pinned him down, screaming, as they pumped him full of water until he looked pregnant. Then the private soldiers punched him in the gut until he vomited it back up. It took two more rounds of the water cure, the last one with salt water, for Yaldama to talk. But the information he had given Captain Glenn was not quite accurate because it's torture and people don't always tell the truth under torture. The American forces trying to track Delgado down ended up being ambushed. So Captain Glenn burned the town to the ground in retaliation and moved on. The water cure was not legal under GO-100. But the crappy thing, guys, is that in some places it did work. This level of brutality did work. After three months of Glenn's reign of terror, Martin Delgado and hundreds of his guerrillas laid down their arms on February 2nd, 1901. The water cure didn't really do it. Uh, the burning of the crops did it. That was the decisive factor. After hundreds of tortured men and broken families and starving people and ruined towns, Pane was pacified. Back in Manila, a different kind of dirty war was being waged. A young officer named Captain Ralph Van Daman took over American intelligence operations in the Philippines. Van Daman is regarded as the founder of American military intelligence. His activities during the World Wars laid the foundation for modern American military intelligence. But he built his craft in the Philippine War, constructing a network of informants and surveillance, building files on known and suspected insurgents, following the money, tracking weapons, doing, you know, spying on people, collecting intelligence to paint a map of the insurgency. Van Damon's activities helped uproot what, what insurgency was left in Manila itself and all over the islands, but also helped lay the foundations for the modern American surveillance state. We'll come back to that in the final episode. MacArthur did not go on some lunatic rampage through the Philippines. This was very carefully targeted, tailored brutality, only in those areas where hearts and minds hadn't worked. 
Keep in mind, half the Philippines are already pacified before the guerrilla war even starts. And as more areas stop fighting, the atrocities stop too. But military action was only half the solution. To truly destroy the insurgency, America had to find a political solution. They had to defeat the reason the insurgency existed. While MacArthur's soldiers wielded the stick, William Howard Taft dangled the carrot. He had made connections with the Filipino elite, and in December 1900, he helped persuade them to form a new party, the Federal Party, that supported the American occupation. Many of the so-called Federalistas were Ilustrados, the upper and middle class Filipinos who had originally risen up against the Spanish. One of their leaders was Trinidad Pardo de Tabera, who had been Aguinaldo's deputy prime minister before, during the 1899 campaigns, but now he became William Howard Taft's right-hand man, the Filipino spokesman for the American Empire. The Federal Party came from the rich Manila elite that had always been the core of Filipino nationalism. And guys, I want to make this very clear, again, many of them sincerely believed that American rule was the best option for their country. After all, the original point of the Philippine Revolution hadn't been independence from Spain, but more rights under Spain, development, economic freedom, education, a seat at the table of government. Taft was offering them that. He was offering to them all the original goals of the revolution, not independence, but, well, maybe someday, just not independence yet. The original goals of the revolution could be fulfilled. And compared to what MacArthur would give them if they refused, it wasn't a hard choice. Throughout 1901, a lot of these Federalistas would display remarkable courage by venturing out from Manila across the islands to spread their message. They went from town to town giving speeches about the benefits of American rule, persuading the locals, and a lot of these guys, remember, were patrons, were patrons to their clients, so that when the patrons spoke, the clients tended to listen. Some of them even went up into the mountains to try to talk the old, their old comrades, the old the guerrilla jefes, to talk the guerrillas into surrendering. Aguinaldo hated the Federalistas. He wanted them shot on sight, but a lot of them succeeded. More and more guerrillas, including some jefes, listened to what the Federalistas said and started to come in and lay down their arms. You have situations where a local elite who had joined the Federal Party shows up in town, just walks out into the jungle, finds the insurgent camp, is like, hey guys, let's talk this over. I got a program, the Americans can help us do this and this, you guys will be safe, you can go home, put down your weapons, no one's going to harm you if you just come in and surrender. And a lot of times this worked. And the Filipinos were helping in other ways too. Also starting in December 1900, you notice this entire program starts right after the election, MacArthur greatly expanded the Philippine police and Philippine scouts, which could be used to supplement American troops in the field. This not only made up for low American troop numbers, but also gave the Americans a local force that understood the language and culture of the region. Plus, giving these men well-paying jobs kept them from joining the insurgency. Soon, 15,000 Philippine scouts supplemented the American war effort, serving as guides, recon forces, strike forces, and even frontline troops. By the end of the decade, they would be the main military force in the islands. By like 1910, the Filipino troops would vastly outnumber the American troops. Americans could not conquer the Philippines without the active participation and support of Filipinos. MacArthur and Taft produced a powerful combination of civil attraction and military coercion. Like, okay Filipinos, we are giving you two options, we've had enough. We can do hearts and minds, or we can do this. 
You can accept American authority, and everything will be awesome. We'll give you schools and roads and vaccines. We'll give you a say in your local government. We'll make sure you're, you have good trade and good economics and good and prosperity. Or you can resist, and we will shoot you. We will hang you. We will torture you. We will force dirty water down your mouth and pummel you. We will burn your lands and ruin your fields and make your family homeless and destitute and possibly dead. We will make this as hard as it needs to be until you accept the civilization we're trying to give you. The insurgency was reeling under the blows of McKinley's re-election and MacArthur and Taft's new combined policy. The coup de grace would come in March 1901, when the end of the line finally arrived for insurgent enemy number one, Emilio Aguinaldo. By early 1901, the tide had clearly turned against the insurgency. The combination of hearts and minds civil policy, the uprooting of the insurgents, and the activities of the federal party were slowly pulling the Filipino population into the American camp. And if that didn't work, there was always the crag, the torch, the noose, or the water cure. And as the insurgents sensed that they were losing control, they stepped up their terror attacks. But in this new context, this only drove the people into the American arms farther. And in March 1901, the Americans dealt one of their greatest single blows to the cause of Filipino independence. Brigadier General Frederick Funston has been a side character in much of the story. Born in 1865, the last year of the Civil War, Funston was cut from the same cloth as Theodore Roosevelt, a cultured adventurer who saw war as a jolly good time. He stepped away from his day job as a, uh, a botanist, yeah, to fight for the Cuban guerrilla movement before the Spanish-American War had even begun. As colonel of the 20th Kansas Volunteers, he led his unit throughout the campaigns of 1899, including the famous Marilau River Crossing, which netted him the Congressional Medal of Honor. During his occupation of Nueva Ecija province, Funston earned a commission as a brigadier general and a reputation for creative ruthlessness. And now... Fred Funston would cement his reputation as one of the most famous American military heroes of the Philippine War with the capture of Emilio Aguinaldo. Aguinaldo had been on the lam ever since he escaped capture in 1899. If the Americans had, I don't know, made a deck of cards with the insurgent leaders on them, Aguinaldo would be the ace of spades. American forces had almost called him countless times, but he had always been one step ahead. He and a small band of followers moved from one hidey hole to another across northern Luzon. His contact with the outside world was limited, and his control over the movement he claimed to lead was non-existent. But he was out there. In January 1901, Brigadier General Frederick Funston learned that his forces had captured a Filipino courier, Cecilio Sehismundo, 60 miles north of Cabanatuan. Sigismundo carried 20 coded letters from Aguinaldo to other guerrilla commanders. When the Americans broke the code on one of them, they discovered that it asked for reinforcements to be sent to Aguinaldo's hideout at Palanan in northeastern Luzon. 
now the Americans knew where and when Aguinaldo was going to be, but how to capture him. Funston personally interrogated Sigismundo to extract details about Aguinaldo's hideout, and yes, before you ask, this interrogation included the water cure. Funston learned that Palanan was 10 miles inland, almost inaccessible in an almost unmapped, unpopulated region of Luzon, and the only way to get there was a narrow jungle trail. Any American force would be detected miles away from the hideout, allowing Aguinaldo to slip through their fingers yet again. So how to catch him? How to keep him from getting away before the Americans were on top of him? General Funston designed a plan. A plan that honestly ranks with the Radon and Tebby Operation Thunderbolt, see episode 5, for sheer audacity. Aguinaldo had asked for reinforcements, so they were going to give him reinforcements. Funston and four other American officers would pretend to be prisoners of war, escorted by Makabebe scouts in captured insurgent uniforms. Using this ruse, Funston planned to infiltrate Aguinaldo's camp and take him prisoner. Something I do want to point out about this, disguising yourself as the enemy is in fact illegal according to the laws of war, as people would point out after this was over. Americans had executed Filipino soldiers fighting in the wrong uniform or no uniform. They expected to be executed if they were captured, but you know, we can break the rules, but you guys can't. After all, you're terrorists. Either way, it was an incredibly risky plan, and General MacArthur thought long and hard before giving it the go-ahead. He told his subordinate, Funston, this is a desperate undertaking. I fear that I shall never see you again. Great pep talk, Arthur. Way to encourage. Funston's expedition of 89 men left Manila on board a U.S. Navy gunboat on March 6, 1901. One of the key members was a Spanish-born officer named Lazaro Segovia, who would play the role of the insurgent commander. The Americans wore blue shirts and khaki uniform pants with no rank, while the Macabebes wore tattered guerrilla outfits they'd captured from prisoners. The gunboat landed them almost 100 miles south of Palanan, and Funston led his raiding party into the trackless jungle of Luzon. The journey was an ordeal. The strike force was drenched by constant rain. They ran out of food, had to literally eat snails to survive. They scaled cliffs and slogged across muddy rivers and beaches. It's just another typical hike in the Philippines. Funston wondered if this whole thing hadn't been a really bad idea. As they got closer to their objective, Funston sent ahead some forged letters by courier to Aguinaldo's camp, informing the president that the promised reinforcements were on their way and they had five captive American officers with them. But then Aguinaldo sent back instructions to leave the quote-unquote American prisoners behind. Don't bring those guys to the hideout. Mmm, don't like that. Segovia would have to lead the Macabebes into the camp alone, without immediate American supervision. It was a risk. Do you trust your own Filipino soldiers? But an unavoidable risk. While Funston and the other Americans hid in the jungle, Segovia approached Palanan on March 23, 1901. Segovia and the Macabebes arrived to see a uniformed honor guard lined up to greet them. This was a ceremonial acceptance. Aguinaldo had been completely deceived. Segovia and an associate were led into a modest cottage where they came face to face with a 32-year-old Emilio Aguinaldo. Somehow, they talked with him. They made conversation with the fugitive president for half an hour, making up stories about all the cool stuff they'd been doing against the Americans without blowing their cover. Then at a break in the conversation, Segovia excused himself, stepped outside, 
and gave the signal to one of his comrades. The Makabebes immediately opened fire on the astonished honor guard as Segovia stormed back in with his pistol drawn. Aguinaldo yelled at the window, What are you guys doing? Stop wasting ammunition! Then turned his head and found Segovia's pistol in his face. Segovia said, You are our prisoners. We are not insurgents. We are Americans. Surrender or be killed. Aguinaldo, completely dumbfounded, raised his hands and surrendered. A few minutes later, General Funston came out of the woods and introduced himself to the Filipino president, who was, like, completely shell-shocked. He kept asking if it was some kind of joke. Not a joke. The mission had succeeded. Emilio Aguinaldo was a prisoner of the Americans. Funston and his commando team got Aguinaldo onto the waiting gunboat and made steam for Manila. When they arrived, the reporters went wild, filing their stories and sending the telegraph wires humming back to the United States. It was an immediate blitz. It was one of the biggest pieces of news since the election. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Frederick Funston became the hero of the hour. Vice President Theodore Roosevelt personally congratulated him for his risky but successful mission, writing Funston that, You have added your name to the honor roll of American worthies. But of course, Frederick Funston is completely forgotten today. When I was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas, I learned that one section of the fort was known as Camp Funston. It's where the railhead was, where I loaded equipment onto trains in preparation for training or deployment. I asked someone, like, who was who this guy Funston? And no one knew. They said, like, oh, some World War I guy. Funston was not in World War I. <laughs> Frederick Funston, one-time American hero, is almost forgotten today. One more sign of the Philippine War's hidden history. Emilio Aguinaldo might have expected execution. After all, he was public enemy number one. American media had portrayed him as a savage barbarian king, a terrorist, a murderer. He had ordered the execution of Filipinos who, who collaborated with the Americans. He, uh, and, you know, he also had Andres Bonifacio and General Luna killed, so maybe he was worried that karma was coming for him. But... When Aguinaldo was brought to General MacArthur, MacArthur treated him with dignity and respect. He gave him luxurious lodgings and brought the insurgent leader to dinner with his staff the night he arrived. Aguinaldo must have been like, what is going on here? MacArthur even made sure Aguinaldo was reunited with his family, who had been in American hands since 1899, his wife his, and his children. William Howard Taft was furious. He saw Aguinaldo as a Tagalog bandit who ought to be hanged. But to MacArthur, Aguinaldo was more valuable alive. For one thing, it persuaded other guerrilla leaders to surrender, because now they knew they would be treated well. Look, we didn't kill Aguinaldo, the boss, the top guy. You're going to be fine if you come in and surrender. For another, MacArthur wanted Aguinaldo to make a formal submission, a formal surrender. Look, Emilio, the war is over. Spare your country the bloodshed. Aguinaldo listened to MacArthur. He listened to his family, who pleaded that he do what he could to end the fighting. And ever the survivalist, he listened to his own instincts. Aguinaldo reflected later. And this sounds pretty personal. This seems like it might have been actually his true feelings on the situation. My capture, together with the treachery and betrayal that accompanied it, left me deeply angered, then distressed, then almost completely numbed. I was overwhelmed by a feeling of disgust and despair. I also felt relieved. I had known for some time that our resistance was doomed to failure. Now it was over, and I was alive. 
Three weeks after his capture, in April 1901, Aguinaldo released a proclamation to his movement and to the Filipino people. He formally surrendered and called on all other Filipinos to do the same. Enough of blood, enough of tears and desolation. By acknowledging and accepting the sovereignty of the United States throughout the entire archipelago, as I now do without any reservation whatsoever, I believe that I am serving thee, my beloved country. My happiness be thine. Then Emilio Aguinaldo went home. He retired to his mansion. He wore a black ribbon forever after for his lost republic, but took no part in public life in the decades to come. And I do mean decades. Emilio Aguinaldo died in 1964. Some of you might have been alive. The Beatles were releasing albums. But his part in this story is over. MacArthur and Funston portrayed the capture of Aguinaldo as the decisive moment in the war, the turning point where the Americans started to win. But Aguinaldo hadn't been the functional leader of the resistance for a long time. American counterinsurgency tactics had been sapping their strength, the Federal Party was eroding their political will, and the election of 1900, and the result not being what they wanted, broke their morale. Province after province was being declared secure. There were no more combat actions occurring in these provinces. Aguinaldo's capture helped, but it was just the icing on the cake. One more blow to a movement that was already on its knees. The resistance had already ended in central Luzon in January 1901, on Pane in February, in northern Mindanao in March 1901. Even Ilocos was peaceful by the summer. Even the infamously ruthless and terroristic Juan Calles, the jefe who had beaten the Americans at Mabitak, opened negotiations for surrender in exchange for full amnesty for all the kind of messed up stuff he'd done. On June 24, 1901, Juan Calles led 600 well-armed guerrillas into Santa Cruz and surrendered in a formal ceremony. Get this. Within a matter of months, the Americans had appointed him governor of Laguna Province, where he turned his ferocity on his former comrades in support of the American cause. Suddenly, there was no more committed Americanista in the world than Juan Calles. The message was clear. Surrender, literally no matter what you've done, and we'll be cool. We'll even put you in charge of the province you once conducted guerrilla operations in. So by July 1901, only two guerrilla jefes, Miguel Malvar in Batangas, and Vicente Lucban on Samar still maintained serious resistance. Malvar claimed to be the new leader of the Philippine Republic, though there wasn't much left of it. In the vast majority of the Philippines, the war was over, and the U.S. volunteers were being sent home after two years of hard service. The rest of the war would be taken up by the regulars. Now, in all honesty, for realsies this time, it could be said that the end of the war was in sight. And this meant it was time for military authority to give way to civil authority. President McKinley and Secretary Root decided that MacArthur's tenure as military governor would end. All executive power would be ceded to William H. Taft, while the new military commander, Adna Chaffee, would report directly to him. Only those provinces where the resistance was still alive would remain under the Army's control. After three years of spearheading the American War in the Philippines, Arthur MacArthur packed his bags and left the very same day he gave up command, July 4th, 1901. He and Taft were not sorry to say goodbye. Arthur MacArthur Jr. is still controversial among American military historians. Some portray him as a genius, 
Others say this is exaggerated. Others say he was downright bad. He was an arrogant, insufferable martinet. Eh, A bit of both. It's hard to argue with results. In May 1900, MacArthur inherited a losing war, and when he left 14 months later, the insurgency was all but destroyed. Arthur MacArthur Jr. and his leadership, but of course, the army did, but he oversaw the victory in the Philippine-American War's counterinsurgency phase. Whether that war was worth fighting? What it cost America to wage it the way they did? Well, it's an entirely different question. Either way, Arthur MacArthur has also left this story. But maybe we haven't seen the last of him. When MacArthur left the Philippines, the insurgency was essentially beaten. Except, keep in mind, for Batangas and Samar. We'll see about that in part four. But now I ask, why? Why did Americans defeat this insurgency, win the Philippine War, but not Vietnam or Afghanistan? The obvious answer is that the Americans were stronger. They had a well-trained army, weapons, money, and resources. But plenty of countries have had all those and still lost. Stronger powers lose wars to weaker powers all the time. Siri, what is Vietnam? Siri, what is Afghanistan? So resources alone are not enough to explain American victory. What did America do right in the Philippines, but not in those other wars? In the Philippine War, the United States Army crafted an effective counterinsurgency policy with a careful balance of civic action, intelligence gathering, and military force. And one of the important things in this war, unlike Vietnam or Afghanistan, is that local commanders were allowed to use creative and pragmatic solutions to the complicated local problems of the Philippines, especially divide-and-conquer tactics that exploited religious, ethnic, and class differences. Unlike the more modern bureaucratic military, solutions in this conflict came from the bottom up, not the top down. And General MacArthur gave them the leeway to implement these solutions. He refused to impose a top-down artificial uniformity on the natural diversity of the conflict. He established guidelines under GO 100 and let his subordinates fill in the gaps. This came with drawbacks, because this low-level autonomy also made room for subordinates to do some pretty messed up things to achieve their objectives. When you don't have control over your junior leaders, they can do creative, wonderful things, but they can also do the water cure. But as disgusting as some of those tactics were, they mostly worked. Whether they were worth it, again, we'll get to that in part four. But the military solution alone was not enough. Defeating the insurgent forces doesn't matter if there isn't a political solution to the problems that created the insurgency. This is why America's political program was tailored to the upper class, the Ilustrados, the driving force of Philippine nationalism. Americans confirmed their status, respected their property, formed the Federal Party, gave them amnesty, and even appointed former insurgent leaders as governors. MacArthur, Taft, and other American leaders bent over backwards to win over the Filipino landowning elite. And it worked. Of course, this did put America in the uneasy situation of reinforcing the Filipino oligarchy in order to control the country, the exact opposite of the democracy they promised. And in the process of empowering them, disproved their own point that the Filipinos were unable to govern themselves. America couldn't conquer the Philippines or govern the Philippines without Filipinos. But then what did that say about their right to conquer them in the first place? Either way, America did something in the Philippines that they never managed to achieve in Vietnam or Afghanistan. They created a political settlement that the country, the population could buy into, and negated the original motivation for the insurgency. 
The key to defeating the Filipino insurgency was to win the hearts and minds of the population, or at least that part of the population that mattered. So America used effective, ruthless military action to, to defeat the insurgency, and they co-opted the Filipino elite into their cause, creating a political solution that ended the reason for the insurgency. Military plus political solution, the pillars of counterinsurgency warfare. That was why America won. But we have to remember, there are two sides to this story. The enemy always gets a vote. We can't just ask why America won. So we have to ask why the Filipinos lost. Because guerrilla warfare is not an instant win button. It's not declare guerrilla warfare and you win. Insurgencies are not invincible. Guerrilla warfare is a tactic the weak use against the strong, and surprise, surprise, the strong usually win. Most insurgencies fail. So what did Vietnam and Afghanistan have going for them that the Filipinos didn't? One big thing was resources. The Filipinos were always short on rifles and ammunition, enough that Americans measured success by how many weapons they captured. The Filipinos also had no contact with the outside world. Aguinaldo had a much harder time getting his propaganda out there without modern communications technology to carry his message like the Vietnamese or the Afghans had. And they were divided by geography, with each force fighting its own separate war, unable to assist the others thanks to U.S. naval supremacy. U.S. Navy gunboats prowling the shallow waters around the archipelago prevented any one insurgent force from assisting the others. The Filipinos lacked one of the critical factors in any successful insurgency, outside support. They had no safe haven, no outside power backing them and giving them weapons and resources and helping amplify their propaganda. The Viet Cong had Cambodia and North Vietnam, and North Vietnam itself had the Soviet Union and China. Afghanistan had Pakistan. The United States has the French and the Spanish. Ukraine has NATO. The Filipinos had no one. And the Filipinos made disastrous strategic mistakes, allowing America to seize control of Manila before the war, waging conventional warfare throughout 1899 when it was futile, and putting all their chips into the election of 1900, an outside event they couldn't really influence and didn't really understand how to manipulate. The Philippine insurgency lacked an effective strategist or clear-sighted political leader like Fidel Castro, Ho Chi Minh or Vo Win Giap, or Vladimir Zelensky or George Washington. Emilio Aguinaldo was not and never could be that guy. But the critical factor, in my opinion, was that the Filipino leadership had nothing to offer the people. There was no unifying cause or ideology to weld the resistance together. Look at successful resistance movements. The Americans had Enlightenment liberalism, the Vietnamese had communism, the Afghans had Islam, the Ukrainians have nationalism. Love or hate them, at least they're causes, at least they're something that people can rally around. The Filipinos didn't have one. Philippine nationalism was still an immature movement, an educated upper-class ideal that had not trickled down to the masses with their diverse ethnic groups across these islands. The Catholic Church sided with the Americans. The Tagalog elite control of the Republic's government alienated minorities, who often sided with the Americans. Aguinaldo failed to build a movement that could unify the Filipino people, who succumbed to their natural diversity, fought their own separate wars, and lost. There was the road not taken. The Filipinos could have tried to rally the masses, do what Apolinario Mabini had suggested in 1899, and give the people something to fight for, offer them a program, Promised land reform, voting rights, civil rights, economic liberty. 
But Aguinaldo and his fellow Tagalog elites had no intention of sharing power with other ethnic groups of the lower classes. That went against their entire worldview. It threatened their positions and their status. That smacked to them of radicalism, socialism, peasant uprising. They would never allow that. So the average Filipino did not have a dog in this fight. He didn't have that motivation to keep him going in spite of all these hardships. Why am I fighting? So everything can be exactly the same? At least the Americans had a program. All the Filipino elite had was the patron-client relationship and the threat of guerrilla terrorism, neither of which was a substitute for a cause. If Emilio Aguinaldo had given the Filipino peasants a cause, a creed, a promise, any reason to fight for him, I don't think the Americans could have won the Philippine War. The entire nation in masses against that small army? No. But he didn't. And they did. The mistakes of the Filipino leadership and their belief that the social and economic order was more important than their political freedom were why they lost the Philippine-American War. Back in America, Mark Twain was disgusted with the outcome. Like many Americans, he was appalled when MacArthur's press censorship was lifted and the stories of 1900 came pouring out. He wrote a sarcastic essay called To the Person Sitting in Darkness about America's new empire. There have been lies, yes, but they were told in the good cause. We have been treacherous, but that was only in order that real good might come out of apparent evil. We have debauched America's honor and blacked her face before the world, but each detail was for the best. And as for a flag for the Philippine province, it is easily managed. We can have just our usual flag, with the white stripes painted black, and the stars replaced by the skull and crossbones. Twain's bitterness was shared by most of the anti-imperialists, but their cause seemed to be a dead letter. By all appearances, the Philippine War was finally coming to an end. The last resistance was being crushed. This would go down in history as one more glorious American victory. President William McKinley certainly thought so. With the war in the bag, he decided to make a grand tour of the United States to try and heal the wounds this war had caused. As part of his tour, McKinley made a stop on September 6th at the Pan-American Exhibition in Buffalo, New York. As he stood in the receiving line shaking hands, a young man stepped towards the president. He was Leon Cholgosh, an anarchist inspired by the recent assassination of Italy's King Umberto I. Cholgosh drew a 32 caliber revolver and fired. McKinley took two bullets to the chest. He clung to life for a couple of weeks, but infection finished what the bullets started. William McKinley died at 2.15 in the morning on September 14, 1901. Mark Hanna's greatest fear had come true. Theodore Roosevelt, that crazy man, was now President of the United States, the youngest up to that point at 42 years old. President Theodore Roosevelt promised to continue absolutely unbroken the policy of President McKinley for the peace, prosperity, and honor of our beloved country. He saw American rule in the Philippines as exemplifying all three, a new dawn, a wonderful image of glorious victory. But in reality, out of the three, prosperity was all they would get. In the final months of the Philippine War, peace and honor would be much harder to come by. Theodore Roosevelt had been president for two weeks when news arrived from the Philippines. 
Something had happened. Something horrible. At a village called Balankiga on the island of Samar. It would be America's greatest defeat since Custer's last stand and set off a chain of events that would lead America into a howling wilderness. The Philippine War was not over. It was about to get worse. President Theodore Roosevelt would finally take center stage at the eye of the storm when the reality of war finally shattered the glorious American image. When Americans were forced to look in the mirror, confront what they'd become, and confront what empire meant. Then, and only then, would the Philippine War make its final descent into darkness. Next time, we will end the story of the Philippine War. We will follow the final defeat of the insurgents on Batangas and Samar, and watch as America grapples with the reality of what imperialism really means. We will see America subdue the last uncontrolled areas of the Philippines, the Moro provinces to the south. We will see how this war is remembered, or why it isn't. And I will finally tell you why it matters. Check back in two weeks for the lovely, airy, Hallmark movie titled Philippine War Part 4, A Howling Wilderness. But before that, I have a short round next week. You've noticed this story has been kind of a bro-fest, and sorry, that's just the product of this period in this conflict. But next Monday, we're going to hear from the ladies, both Filipino and American, imperialist and anti-imperialist, only a little racist and really, really racist, the whole shebang. See you next week for Women of the Philippine War. And until then, guys, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. I am easy to reach by email at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com or my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. I am on Facebook and Twitter, though who knows for how much longer on Twitter, at UNK Soldiers Pod. Drop me a line. I want to hear from you. And if you're feeling super grateful, don't forget my donate button on my website. All right, guys, see you next week for Women of the Philippine War and in two weeks for part four, A Howling Wilderness, right here on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>